Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Wanda Tankersley, Chief Operating Officer at MTA, or Matanuska Telecom Association, which is a telecommunications co-op in the state of Alaska. She and I discuss the unique challenges to providing broadband in a rural and rugged state like Alaska, as well as the company's Alcan One project, the first all-terrestrial fiber line connecting Alaska to the lower 48. We also get into MTA's recent efforts to connect students to high-speed internet, as well as the impact of supply chain and labor shortages on its plans to expand. Wanda, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So to start off, can you just tell me a bit about MTA? When was it founded and what services you all provide? MTA is a co-op up in Alaska in the Matanuska Valley, and we were founded back in 1953. So we're, we're pretty old, actually. And our service area is over 10,000 square miles. So we're very large. Our service area is about the size of West Virginia. And um, it's very rural, very, um, very rugged, like much of Alaska. A lot of our service area isn't even connected by road systems. So we definitely have some challenges in that regard. Our main services we offer are traditional voice, like most telcos and Lex, and then, of course, internet, um, ISP. We also have a couple of subsidiaries that get into more like the managed services, um, you know, IT support, that type of thing. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk a bit about um, the internet service that you all provide. MTA launched a fiber network, I believe, not not too many years ago, pretty recently, right? So can you tell me a bit about when and how you all started providing fiber and how that's impacted broadband adoption as a result? Well, MTA has been in the internet business for quite a while. You know, it used to be back in the day, uh, DTV, uh, was the main product, and actually, internet was sort of uh, the tag along, and that that of course has absolutely changed, hasn't it? And we've been pushing fiber out into our network, like most telcos, for quite some time. One thing MTA did that was, I think, pretty different for certainly for Alaska is we built a fiber connection down to Seattle through Canada. We are the first um, terrestrial fiber connection to the internet, um, the POP in Seattle. The rest of Alaska is all connected through subsea cables um, through um, Anchorage down to Seattle. So that was a huge change for us and frankly for the state as well uh, because there's a lot of um, geographic risk, instability, earthquakes, things like that that happen along that area. But for MTA, what was pretty cool about that was our internet business had grown to such a point that we built that that network basically off cost savings. We could see the internet growth and our subscribers was so substantial when they really started to adopt and um, over the over the top streaming their video content that the growth of that that um, cost for us to be buying that transport to the lower forty eight was going to become too impactful to us. And as a co op, um, we have the freedom of. You know, it's not just about dividends and returns to shareholders. It's about securing affordable, high um, quality product for our member owners. So the cost savings alone justified the build 
um, up through Canada. We partnered with Northwest Tel, a Canadian telco, and then we come down through Canada. And it actually can drop out all across the lower 48. And that was really important because what that did for us is it secured for our members long-term, high-quality, affordable internet and, um, and also provided a diverse route for all of Alaska. So now all of Alaska is not dependent on the two subsea cables, which travel basically the same route. That was a huge step forward. And it was really driven by that increase in demand, which ironically, we saw that huge uptick two ways. One, which was getting out of TV, right? But way we got out of TV, we literally held clinics, classes for all of our members and taught them how to stream. And so it was one of those things, if you see it, it's easy. If you've never seen it, you're like, what? What am I clicking? I don't understand. Um, So we held these and the adoption rate just went off the chart. We kept almost, I think it was almost 99% of our TV subscribers converted smoothly into internet and started using it like crazy. So that was a huge driver on our demand. And then of course, COVID. COVID changed everything and the use just pegged out. So it sounds like you came along with that fiber network at the at the exact right time. Taking a step back, it sounds like you guys are doing some incredible work, but you also mentioned some of the unique circumstances in Alaska when it comes to delivering internet. So what is the state of the digital divide in Alaska today? And, and what are the circumstances that are still making universal connectivity difficult to achieve both for your company and the others in, in the space there? You know, the biggest challenge for Alaska is uh, middle mile, what we call middle mile, intrastate connectivity. So most of Alaska is not on the road system. You know, the the state has, I want to say, 750,000. We don't even have a million people. And a lot of it's concentrated in the Anchorage, Matsu, Kenai area. But we have a lot of communities that are only accessible by boat and by plane. And in fact, our state capital, Juneau, is only accessible by boat or plane. So getting affordable transport, those networks, as this audience will know, is very expensive to build, right? And and you're talking about connecting communities that are very small. And so getting that middle mile connected to those communities, it's a tough business case. And so much of Alaska is connected through microwave, you know, alternate type means that try to get that cost down. And as a result, of course, those communities don't have as good a service. MTA is no different than our other co-ops. And then, of course, we have a couple of um, large private ones as well. And we all struggle with it. So we have some communities as well that are off the road system and getting that connection to them there isn't a business case. I'm going to be just very clear about that. The way it works, the way Alaska is able to do it, and we're so excited about what's happening on the federal level, is through grants and federal funding. It's It really is the government stepping up and saying, ensuring all citizens are connected with outstanding internet at an affordable price. That's the only way those cases are going to work in Alaska. So we're going to talk about some of that federal funding because we happen to be talking on the day that the Senate finally voted to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which includes $65 billion for for broadband. So I do want to hear more from you about how you're using federal funding and how you're planning to use what might be coming down the pike from the government if they manage to get this thing all the way to Biden's desk (laughs) in the next couple of months, probably. But Before we get there, I know that you've also, you know, you mentioned COVID changed things significantly. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work with uh, students in underserved rural communities in, in Alaska. So can you tell me a bit about that work and what you've been able to accomplish? COVID 
like many of us, was transformative. We had never had remote workers. And, you know, we went remote um, very suddenly, went to high alert in the state, and um, we, we had not been set up for that. And so I like to share this story because I'm so proud of, you know, my coworkers and cohorts at MTA. They are so amazing through this. So we, we didn't have time to get set up. So literally, we sent them home. I sent them home. I said, okay, everybody um, load up. And so I, I was standing on the, uh, our top floor looking at the parking lot and, you know, the employees are wheeling out their chairs with their desktops and monitors. I thought, oh, Lord, this is the end of me. Um, but <laughs> it, it turned out okay. Um, but what happened was, you know, we had like our, our residential sales reps um, literally trying to figure out how to connect from their kitchen tables. And their kids got all set home at the same time, right? So there's just this total chaos happening. Simultaneously, we said every student and teacher in our area, university or, you know, K through 12, gets a free upgrade to the max we can get them. If we don't have to roll a truck and we can just turn them all the way up, it's free Um, because we wanted to completely support them through this crisis. As they're literally at their kitchen tables trying to figure out how to connect and how to make this work, we did almost three months of work in like two weeks. They were amazing. Our union, where a union um, shop was fantastic, worked with us, let us use things. IBW, shout out to them because they were fantastic. So the whole company and the union just absolutely rallied and got those teachers and students completely turned up. We also simultaneously realized there's a huge portion of the population that uses public Wi-Fi in the public libraries and in the public government buildings. So I started getting these calls from people saying, I, I can't connect, the library's closed. And, and I'm like, well, but you're not a, a member. You're not even our customer. Well, what was happening was the governments were shutting down those public spaces and they had no way to connect, which you know was particularly hard because these are some of our most vulnerable members of society, right? These are people that really need to be connecting to benefits and job opportunities and different things of that nature. So called the local governments and said, hey, you guys, we got a problem here. You know, you, your citizens are relying on this. You shut it down. So we said, okay, how do we keep people connected, give them public Wi-Fi in a situation where they also can't be near each other, right? Social distancing. So we did drive-in Wi-Fis and we set up all across our borough and across our cities. And so people could pull in, do homework, do their connect with all of that. And that worked really well. And vice president of marketing said, you know, the, the COVID upgrades, best marketing ever, because it was almost, I want to say it was about 70% kept those upgrades after we sunsetted them when school closed. So, you know, we did it for the right reasons, right? Keeping the students connected and the families and our community and our businesses. And same with the the cities. Many of them have kept the the public Wi-Fis, but now they pay for them um, because they saw the value. That wasn't why we did it, but everybody came out ahead as a result. And is that something you were, it sounds like you you acted on that immediately. So I assume that was before any CARES Act money came through uh, or anything like that, right? Were you able to use funding from the CARES Act as well to expand your efforts? I believe we were able to use the CARES funding to mitigate some of the 
the people, the individuals that couldn't pay, and we keep them connected. We did not disconnect anyone during that time. So we were able to use that. And, and you're 100% right. We did it before any of that was happening. We did it within the first few weeks of, of us rolling out and um, shutting everything down and when the um, community went into lockdown because it, it was the right thing to do. And we're a co-op. So serving our community and serving our member owners is uh, our number one priority. And it worked out well. So yes, the federal funding was helpful, though, particularly to those governments as well. There's another school year approaching. Of course, I admit I don't know uh, what the Alaska school year looks like, whether you start in August, September, or year-round, or, or what you're doing. But what is this school year looking like for students in Alaska? Are they going to be back in the classroom? Are you preparing again to keep some students at home? How are, how are you working with schools on the upcoming school year? That's a, a great question. Our service area covers three districts, and they each have approached it a little differently. They are all planning on going back and being in the classroom, no remote. One is mandating masks, one is is not so far, although like the rest of the country, we are now starting to experience some significant increases with the Delta variant. So we worked closely with the school because one of the things we found was it wasn't just that students didn't have enough connectivity, it became really clear very quickly some didn't have any connectivity. And so we worked with the school district and partnered with them. And actually, we have a Matsu um, Health Foundation as well to create a program where that is paid for, for those families. Each school was able to identify those students individually that had no connectivity. Some of them is due to economic reasons. And the programs that currently are in place, both from our individual program with the Matsu Health District and then also the Matsu School District, but also um, with the EBP program as well, help target those. There are others in Alaska that um, also don't have commercial power. And so a lot of Alaska, in addition to not being on the road systems, doesn't have commercial power. It's very difficult to have networks in a meaningful way where there isn't commercial power. It's not uncommon for, you know, families to live off the grid. That's, you know, an appeal to a lot of people in Alaska. So those are challenges we're still working to overcome. MTA is working closely with our electrical association as well, because those solutions are tough. Right now, most of them are going to be relying on a wireless solution, which is uh, not as robust and certainly not as affordable. I'm just wondering what your upcoming plans are for this year in terms of expansion or other partnerships and also how your plans may or may not be impacted by uh, fiber shortages and, and other supply chain crunches at the moment. Yeah, we have an exciting year. And that was even before this, uh, the most recent uh, federal stimulus that may be coming, uh, hopefully. We got a grant you may know we got almost $2 million to connect some um, remote communities that we have up north. That'll get to about another 300 They don't even have um, voice service, let alone um, adequate internet service. So, so that's exciting. We're building that. We are um, working really closely on grant funding for with several of our boroughs and getting to some of those really remote areas. We usually run um, a large capital budget anyway. Um, we spend about $24 million a year, and we're, our company is about $100 million, kind of give you a, a, just a frame of reference. So we spend a lot in capital annually. We have a very aggressive capital plan. 
We have been running into fiber shortages. And in fact, we pre-placed orders for two years out in order. We're at about a 45-week lead time to get fiber. That's a problem for us. That's a, a problem for anyone. But then you factor in that we have a very short construction season because we're our ground, we're frozen solid for much of the year. We need our supplies and we need them on the ground and ready to go as soon as we can start plowing and putting it in. The other thing we're running into is really significant labor shortages. And again, IBW is fantastic. We're working closely with them. That's, we're seeing that across all of our positions. So the disruption in the supply chain is is significant for us. Fiber as well as our customer prem equipment as well. We have a managed a managed Wi-Fi service. Our equipment that's in the home, we manage that Wi-Fi, uh, ensures a much better experience for our customers, and we're having trouble getting that. So the way we're handling it is uh, we're dealing with two years of capital purchases in one year in order to try to secure those. And I imagine a lot of other companies are running into the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I don't think you are alone there. (laughs) And just before I let you go, then let's turn back to this uh, broadband bill that is making its way. It's made its way out of the Senate now and is 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 heading with the rest of the infrastructure package to the House. Um, So from what we know about it, it certainly gives a lot of... um, uh, discretion to the states in terms of how to distribute the money, which is something that I believe a lot of states were fighting for. It doesn't go as far as the fiber uh, lobby was hoping in terms of mandating 100 symmetrical. It also includes a lot for uh, in terms of digital equity and an effort, it seems, to extend the FCC's emergency broadband benefit program and, and reform it. Beyond that, there, there are lots of other things in it. So I'd just love to get your high-level uh, thoughts on what you know about the bill and what you, what you hope will ultimately come from it uh, when it's passed. Well, Alaska, MTA, and all the other telcos up here, which the vast majority are co-ops as well, like um, like MTA, we're super excited about this. Uh, the amount that is tentatively looking at for Alaska is um, material enough that we should be able to address a lot of those middle mile problems we were talking about. Getting the uh, remote communities connected. Most of us up here, MTA and, and my fellow co-ops and companies have done a pretty decent job in the last mile. It's getting that connectivity in between those communities. We're excited. The state's excited. We can really address that. That should help transform the economic opportunities and educational opportunities in all of those areas. And from an MTA's perspective, we feel confident that with that, we'll be able to build fiber throughout our entire service area. We're working with, I mentioned, um, the utility companies, the electrical. And, you know, typically we follow them in the ditch, if you will, where they put a ditch in, we're following behind. But in discussions with their management, I said, if we're able to get funding and and get in, will you follow us? And they said, yes. So it, it should be a transformative funding opportunity for us in MTA service area, as well as Alaska, will finally really be able to catch up with where um, a lot of the lower 48 is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Wanda, for your time and all the great work you're doing. I'll definitely be, be keeping up with what you guys got going on this coming year. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you again, Wanda, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 